don't worry, <clears throat> we're sitting down, it's not sacrilegious, and it's not going to make Jesus come back anytime soon. <laughs> so, those stools that we were on last week were so uncomfortable, and I was petrified. It was going to just slip right out from under me, and I would be sitting on the floor all of a sudden. So, um, and it was kind of appropriate that we drug these chairs up here anyway, because this really sort of is uh, where the origins of this sermon series came from, two looks at the book. And uh, we st sit around in these chairs, which come from my office, and we talk about different interpretations of the Bible. And so we thought we'd bring them out here since this is sort of where the origins of this idea came from anyway. You kind of make it sound like we don't do any work, like we just sit around and... That is work. You know? <laughs> Talking about the Bible is our job. <laughs> so the idea behind this sermon series is to help you all become better readers, better interpreters of Scripture by kind of modeling some things and showing you some things. Um, a lot of times we will assume things that are not really written in the text because maybe we learned it in Sunday school as a little kid or maybe as an old kid, uh, we may have learned that. And so we, we can make jump to certain assumptions. I mean, we've all heard the story of the prodigal son, and we, we all know what it means. But the idea of reading Scripture carefully and studying it is to understand a little bit better uh, the interpretation. Uh, so today we're going to be taking a look at the story of the rich young ruler, um, who, by the way, was not a rich young ruler in any of the three synoptic gospels. In the gospel of uh, Mark, he was just rich. In the gospel of Matthew, he was rich and young. And in uh, Luke, he was a ruler. Um, not like a yardstick ruler, but a ruler of people, right? And, and so we kind of mash those stories together and we call him the rich young ruler. So, and we do that, we talked about, we do that with the creation stories that we talked about last week. Um, and we can assume things that are, that are not written. And as Methodists, um, we use what's called the Wesley Quadrilateral to sort of inform our faith. And you may have seen it drawn as a, a box with four equal boxes. Um, let me just tell you, that's, that's wrong. That's, that's an error because we, what we lean on in looking at Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience is Scripture. Scripture is primary. We always start with the Scripture. Scripture informs us. We use reason, tradition, and experience to help us illumine our faith light and even help um, illumine our Scriptures for us, uh, as we'll see a little bit later. So we'll use this lens of uh, Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. So, our text today comes from the Gospel of Matthew. It's the 19th chapter, verses 16 through 26. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. 
When the young man heard his word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. This is the word of God for the people of God. So as we unpack the scripture a little bit today, uh, I'm going to be focusing on the tradition part of the quadrilateral that Mike was talking about, because looking at sort of the traditional interpretation of this passage as we have understood it. And when we say tradition, we don't necessarily mean like our local church traditions or just customs, but uh, the church tradition going all the way back to the early Christians and the um, writings that they established and what we can learn from all of that. Um, And so uh, everybody, when you're in Sunday school and you're looking at a scripture, uh, whether you know it or not, you're doing something called exegesis. And it's not an extra Jesus, it's just exegesis. Yes. (laughs) So, uh, and, and that's something that we do like as we prepare sermons. We go through this process called exegesis. And the word exegesis literally means uh, to lead out of, meaning that the conclusions that we form from the scriptures are led out of the scripture, that the scripture is the basis for those conclusions. Now, compare that to a process called eisegesis. Eisegesis means to lead into, where you would inject your own conclusions or ideas into a scripture. So like you have an argument or you have a conclusion that you've drawn and you want to go find just the right scripture to make it say what you want it to say, right? And so the the preferred and, and better way to interpret scripture is the exegesis, where the conclusions come out of the scripture, which kind of goes back to what you were saying about scripture being primary, right? Right. So we're going to do a little bit of that in the next couple of minutes. Um, And there's a lot of different pieces to that. One is to look at the meaning of words, uh, the translation of the word, uh, where the word was used in other places in the Bible, so that we can kind of grasp an understanding of what the author meant when he used that word. So, for example, in this particular passage, when Jesus says, if you wish to be perfect... He doesn't mean perfect in the way that we understand it. Yeah, I mean, in our Western culture, a lot of times we understand the word perfect to be without error or flaw. And that's not what he's talking about here. Because who could be a perfect disciple, right? Certainly not this one. Nope. And so it's not perfect meaning without error. It's perfect meaning whole, uh, complete, mature. And so part of the word study is to look at where it's used in other places. So like in Leviticus in chapter 19, verse 2, we see a reference to perfect meaning whole or complete. Um, You can also look at other places that the Old Testament is referenced. So when the man asks Jesus, what do I need to do? Uh, Jesus quotes scripture back to him. He quotes Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Um, That's what he's telling them that he needs to do. Uh, And the man's like, I've done that. And what this gets us for this interpretation is that this man uh, is a representative first century Jew. He is faithful. He is upstanding. He's doing all the things he's supposed to be doing to practice his faith. 
Um, he is giving to the, you know, charitably to the widow and the orphan as was called for um, according to their customs and their tradition. Um, and so the idea being that if he's doing all that he needs to do, and then he comes and says, what else do I need to do? And then Jesus kind of gives him this impossible task, right, of just selling everything and following him. And, and another thing about exegesis is the historical context and understanding. So when you think about that, it means that this lesson that Jesus is telling the disciples really just turns everything they know upside down. Because for them to have riches meant that you were blessed and favored by God, that you were doing all the things you were supposed to do, and so God was, was blessing you. And so to be told, oh, well, you have to go sell everything, give it to the poor and follow me, you know, get rid of all your stuff, that really would just have flipped everything for them, um, especially for this man who is checking all the boxes of his faith. Um, so let's talk about the um, really bad news in the second part of the scripture. The, uh, and this appears in all three accounts, all three gospel accounts of this story um, about the camel and the needle. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven, right? That doesn't sound like good news for us. You know, we've talked about the idea that... Um, we're, we're among the rich. By comparison to the rest of the world, we're among the rich. So that makes us squirm a little bit. So there's a couple of different um, thoughts about this from uh, church writings. Uh, and one is that there was actually something called a needle gate um, that in the city wall, there was like a small gate that was sort of used like as an after hours entrance. Uh, and the idea being that for a camel to go through it, like if somebody were to arrive and needed to go through the gate, they would have to unload their camel, like unpack their camel of all the things for the camel to be narrow enough to fit through this narrow gate, right? And so if, if, if that's true, and that's sort of disputed, because some sources say that's true and other sources say that's eh, not really a thing. So, but if that's true, right, then um, this audience that Jesus is talking to would have kind of gotten that reference. They would have understood the idea of unburdening themselves of things in order to reach their, their goal or their destination. Um, but the other idea being that Jesus is, is using hyperbole. You know, we've talked about that before, that Jesus does that. He's being kind of funny to suggest something so impossible, uh, a camel fitting through the eye of a literal needle, um, which speaks to the fact that this man was asking, like, what can I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And the point is that there's nothing you can do of your own power. That he says mortals can't do this, but nothing is impossible with God. Meaning that we depend on God's grace. We depend on Christ to reconcile us to God um, and to have a, that right relationship. Um, and so the traditional interpretation of this scripture really boils down to verse 22, where he goes away shocked and grieving. Depending on which gospel you're looked at, look at, he goes away either shocked or grieving or both. Um, and so the, the idea is, don't be this guy. Don't be this guy who has Jesus in front of him offering a life of discipleship and following Christ and eternal reward and turn it down. So. That, that is the traditional uh, interpretation of this text. I mean, don't be like this guy. And even in, in some of the, uh, the scholarly things that I read, the, he the headline will be... Um, 
would-be disciple of Jesus or something like that. But if you pay attention to the Scripture, if you read the text, it is silent as to whether the man did it or not. There, there is, is, doesn't say he went away sad and never saw Jesus again, or it, we don't know what he did. We just know that he went away sad. And, and so I, I have a different interpretation of this text um, because of my experience. And, and so um, this is where that Wesley quadrilateral comes into play here because I have had a, an experience I interpret this text a little differently, and I really want to defend this guy because Scripture is silent as to whether or not he did it. And so I'll just tell you my experience. So um, it's my call story, but I was 37 years old. I lived in Houston, Texas. I had three children, had a lovely home, a wonderful community of friends, and my children had great friends. And I was teaching Sunday school, uh, high school Sunday school every Sunday, and loved my church, loved my house. I could drive to work in five minutes and not go through a single stoplight. Life was awesome. <laughs> I loved my job. And I loved my whole community, what I was experiencing. And then um, God came along and I thought it was a long-term case of indigestion, but it was actually God sort of tugging at my heartstrings, saying, I've got something for you to do. And I was a commercial lender at the time, right? And so I'm like, okay, you want me to go run a nonprofit or go work at the Red Cross or something? Okay, I, I can get on board with that. And so I began to explore this God tugging at me with my pastors. And um, over time, um, I came to understand that God was not calling me to go run a nonprofit, and God was calling me to be professional ministry. And um, I will be very honest with you, when I got done laughing at God about how horrible things must be for Him to call somebody like me to go be a pastor, um, I was shocked. Um, and then I was sad because I loved what my life was. I loved what was happening, but I did it anyway. I mean, if I had told you that God called me to do this and I realized this and I was sad and that's where I stopped, what would you think? You'd think the same thing you think of this guy, that he didn't do it. But, but the truth is I was sad. My wife was sad, <laughs> but we did it. We did it anyway. And, you know, I had a, a great job that I really enjoyed. But what it came down to for me was, do I love my lifestyle or do I love my God? At the end of the day, it wasn't really all that hard a question. And so I want to defend this guy. Scripture is silent as to what he did. So let, let's take a look at what this means for us in our life. Why would Jesus require this of this guy? And I think Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus can see into us and who we are and what we value and what we love. And maybe Jesus could tell that this man was hanging on a little too tight to his possessions, hanging on a little too tight to all of the stuff 
that he had in his life. I mean, that's for us. We can do that. We, we can hang on to uh, things in our life, material things, too much, too tightly. And, and perhaps that's why Jesus said to him, hey, sell it all and come and follow me. So we don't know what he did, but I think Jesus probably was looking into this guy's heart. And one of the things I've learned over the years, that when Jesus is calling you to do something, you're going to be stretched. Jesus doesn't call you to comfortable, easy things that you probably might even already be doing. Jesus calls us to things that make us a little uncomfortable. Now, let me be clear here. Uh, not every time Jesus calls you requires a wholesale life change like I did. But my experience has been that when God calls us to go to work for him, it's going to be something that's going to make us uncomfortable. It's going to be a stretch for us. And we will have to trust that God will equip us. And so if God is calling you to do something and it makes you a little uncomfortable, that probably means it really is from God as opposed to some voice in your head, right? So, and the other thing that I look at this text and you, you, you might draw the conclusion that Jesus is against wealth. And I, I don't think that's the case. I mean, he, God can do all things even allow rich people in heaven. It's about your heart. It's about where your heart is. It's not about your money or how much you have. It's about, are you putting Jesus first in your life? Or are you hanging on to these possessions? I mean, the truth of the matter, for those of us that are, are wealthy, and if you, by world standards, if you have money in the bank and know where your next meal is coming from, you're wealthy. Sometimes we find ourselves much more reliant upon ourselves than God. I mean, somebody who doesn't know where their next meal is coming from is a lot more reliant on God to provide that meal than we are with money in the bank. And so we, we can find ourselves not relying on God like we should because I can do this. I've got this handle. And I think that's Jesus' problem with wealth here, is that we, we can think because we're wealthy, I don't need God. And nothing could be further from the truth. That the truth is we all need God. And what Jesus is calling us to is, is an all-in discipleship. I mean, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that he's first in my life. That's number one in my life. And we've talked some about this before, but that, that even means your children and your family. You're supposed to love God first, and then your children and your family. And I know that feels weird, but that's the right order. And on the occasions in my life where I get it right, where God is first, and then my family, and then my children, everything is better. So what Jesus is asking us to do is to be an all-in disciple. 
And, you know, we just, we look at this text and we just assume that this man didn't do it. And, and Scripture really is, is silent on that. Yeah, the bottom line of either interpretation for this is that um, this passage really is all about discipleship and the idea that there are no part-time disciples, that God does call us to be all in and not to have a foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom of God, but to be fully invested um, in our life uh, as committed Christians. And so, you know, the... when, When I do the exegesis on this, the question that comes to me uh, is, what is God calling you to do? So Paul tells us that we all have different gifts that we can use to build up the body of Christ. So like Mike said, it may not be a calling to turn your whole life upside down like we did, um, but but to find your gift and to find uh, that calling that's going to allow you to participate in the body of Christ and to build up the kingdom of heaven in that way. Um, because everybody, everybody has um, a gift. Um, you just kind of have to figure out what it is. And you can do that through a, a period of discernment, your spiritual gift inventories. You can, there's Bible studies. We can talk to Susie about that, all, all that kind of stuff. But finding your gift and realizing that a life of discipleship um, isn't just saying yes to Christ once and then holding on to your golden ticket, but to live each day as a disciple, that your identity as a disciple of Christ should influence every decision that you make. Yeah, and you know, Paul in, in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 12, says, make yourself a holy and living sacrifice that is acceptable to God. And that's what it means for us to be a disciple of Jesus, is that we give our whole life to following Jesus, to, to being his disciple, to, to answering his call in our life. Um, a holy and living sacrifice. That's, that's what Jesus is calling us to do and to be. So imagine like you're this guy and you're sitting with Jesus and Jesus says, will you follow me? What is your answer? Is it sure, but only for an hour on Sunday? Or is it sure? Let me go out and find my gift and use it to build up your kingdom and live my life as a disciple of Christ. Let us pray. Generous God, you give us all things, both spiritual and physical, and we are so grateful for your abundance. Help us to hold lightly to the fading things of earth and to rather grasp to the lasting things of your kingdom so that our thoughts, our words, and our deeds may be gifts back to you as a response for that overwhelming and sometimes even un, not even incomprehensible grace that you have offered us. Help us to remember that there is nothing that we can do of our own power to reconcile ourselves to you, that our salvation comes from Christ, who calls us to follow him and to seek you above all else. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.